think I'm situated now. So I, I wanted to, to start by saying how good it is to see Valerie playing piano again, how much it feels like normal again, to have her up there, and also how fun it is to have the boys up here playing music. Isn't that fun? I grew up Catholic, and I was an altar boy, and I remember the first time I got on stage as an altar boy, my brother sat in the audience the whole time making faces at me to try and get me to break up, and I felt like I could say that now because I'm pretty sure Levi is in, in Sunday school, so I'm not going to give him any ideas. Um, so um, I, was, I, was, I was thinking about, about headlines, about good news and, and bad news, and, and what, what are some of the biggest headlines of the 20th century? I was curious, and I went and looked it up. Um, it's an interesting thing to do. Um, maybe two-thirds of them are bad news. Um, wars starting, important people dying or being assassinated, natural disasters. Um, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of bad ones out there. There's a handful of good ones that stand on their own, like the moon landing and things like that. And a lot of the good ones, you notice, are only good because they're in contrast to something bad. Like a war ending, Right? Or the end of the Cuban Missile Crisis. We made it through. We didn't start a nuclear war. Yay. Right? That good, good news. And, and so I, I, I pulled a couple of examples of these. This is after World War I. World War I is over. This is a really good news headline. But it, it stands in contrast to the fact that World War I was horrible. Uh, the Berlin Wall crumbs crum, crumbling down. That was another major headline. And again, it was the end of, of something bad. It was in contrast to something bad. And um, here's one that's pretty relevant, it, it, polio vaccine successful. So when that first happened, that was, that was a big deal. Um, and obviously, because polio crippled many, many tens of thousands of kids. Um, it crippled Roosevelt. My mom's cousin, Gary, spent his life in a, has spent his life in a wheelchair because of, of polio. So polio was a terrible thing, and the vaccine was really good news in contrast um, to, this, to these terrible things that had happened. My point is that oftentimes, to really understand good news, you have to understand the depth of the bad news. Right? The polio vaccine was good news because of how bad it was. The, the end of World War I was good news because of how bad World War I was. So we're at the part of Paul's letter to the Romans where Paul is finally beginning to lay out the good news. The very, very good news of the gospel. But to get here... As you know, we had to slog through some bad news for, for many weeks and months. We, there, it has been wrath, and, and it has been a lot of bad news. And the bad news is that when it comes to righteousness, when it comes to being right before God, we're utterly hopeless. Paul has spent the first few chapters making this argument that whether you're a Gentile or a Jew, you are without excuse before God. If you're a Gentile who isn't familiar with the scripture, you don't have an excuse because God made himself known through the, the natural world. And Paul says, you still stand condemned before God. And if you're a Jew who does know the God and has, has sought to follow it, he's argued, you haven't. You're incapable of it. You, you've done a terrible job of it. And you're, and, um, and you're a hypocrite because you, you are prideful about what part of the law you do follow. And so that's all the bad news, right? It's been important for us to grasp it because it's going to make much clearer, much more understandable what's coming next here in these, in these upcoming verses, which is the good news of the gospel, what, what Gary read this morning. 
And our verse starts in 27. That's the actual passage that we have to deal with this morning is 27 through 31. We were laughing because I think Mike said, in the original text, he said that Gary should read 27 through 37. So there were six extra verses in Romans that Mike added that I was just going to make up, but you probably wouldn't have liked what I... Ray said there's some kind of stern warning about... I don't know. Um, so in verse 21, Paul shifts into the good news with these, these glorious words, but now, but now. I, I, I know Mike preached on this section of scripture at Good Friday, and, and not all of us were here for that. Um, I, one of the things he said about that, though, is that um, uh, I think it's Martin Lloyd-Jones Lloyd has said that these are two of the sweetest words in all of scripture, but now. It's the turning point of Romans, where, where Paul is beginning to lay out the gospel, what Christ did, what he accomplished. Paul tells us in verse 22 that there's a righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ, and that it's for all who believe in him. And of course, Romans 3, 23 through 24, I mean, many of us, many of our kids, this is one we memorize, right? It's because it's just such a clear, if you want to sum up the gospel in just a couple of verses, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, you guys could probably recite this with me, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You noticed I was reading it because I didn't ever memorize that. But. <laughs> um, but it's just a really clear, wonderful statement of the gospel. It's the gospel in one of his clearest forms in all of Scripture. And, and this is what Luther, the, this, is this, this passage, this section here, this is, this is what lit up Luther and got him really understanding salvation by faith alone. And this is the, this is the big headline. Um, there's another verse here just before we get into our passage, verse 26, um, that I just wanted to look at. In verse 26, Paul says, It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So there's a couple quotes um, from Francis Schaeffer that I think are helpful here. He says, A better translation to capture the sense of the Greek word would be that he might be just and yet the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Um, you see the difference? It's an important distinction. Um, no, no, wait. Not, the point he's making, sorry, I skipped my side. The point he's making is that everything Paul has said about our sin is true. Everything he said about God's righteousness is also true. Um, I'm sorry, I, I'm mixed up in my notes, but that he might be just and yet the justifier. That's it. My brain kicked in again. That he might be just and yet the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. His point is, for God to be just, he can't just ignore our sins, right? He can't just, he can't just ignore the crime. I mean, you imagine a murder trial, and, and all the evidence is laid out, and they're like, yeah, this guy's guilty. He did it. And like, judge, what's the penalty? And the judge is like, eh, go free. That's not a good judge, right? That's not, nobody would say, oh, you're, you're just, you're, you're a good guy, right? That would be horrible because justice wouldn't have been done. And, and, and Schaefer's point here is the contrast here is that God might be just and yet also the justice, that he might justify us and still remain just. And, and what, he, what brings us together, Schaefer argues, and, and we will argue, is the finished work of Christ on the Christ on the cross. So here's the rest of what he wrote. He said, there are two factors in salvation 
the basis and the instrument. The basis of our salvation is the finished work of Jesus Christ without a hair's breadth of any human good works added to the scale. The instrument by which we share in this salvation is our faith, our believing God. Our faith does not have saving value. We're not saved on the basis of our faith. Our faith is the empty hands that accept the gift of salvation. You see the difference? It's an important distinction. In, in Ephesians, Paul says we're saved by grace through faith. Grace does the saving, and faith is the instrument by which it's done. It's important that we understand this as we move into verse 27, which is the first verse that we're actually covering, because it lays the foundation, these two things, these ideas that the idea first that God satisfies justice, he remains just while forgiving us, and second, that, that it is not our faith itself that does the saving, but that it is, that it is Christ's work acting through our faith. So starting in verse 27, Paul asks, then what becomes of boasting? And he answers, he says, it's excluded. Now, Paul's going to talk a lot about boasting in this chapter and in the next chapter in 4.2. So he, it's a point that matters to him, this boasting, this issue of pride. So why? Why is this important to Paul? Why, is, what's the, why does it matter? Well, to see this, I want to backtrack a tad. Um, this is our first question, by the way. We have three questions. What, three questions that Paul's asking in this, in this verse. The first one is, what becomes of our boasting? So looking back at, at, at where we've been in Romans, um, I know you're thinking we're going back to the wrath part, but trust me, it's just for, just for a minute, just for a minute. He says, even though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or give thanks. He says in 122, professing to be wise, they became fools. And in 128, he says, they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer. Then in chapter 2, Paul talks about how we pass judgment on others, how we're hypocritical, but we pass judgment on others, and how even as we do that, we're just as sinful as them. And then in 3.9, when Paul is listing out all the, his final argument for the sinfulness of man, he ends by saying about mankind that there is no fear of God before their eyes, that our stance before God is prideful, arrogant defiance. You see, the common thread that runs through all of these is pride, is pride before God, is arrogance before God. The, the pride is the root of, of, of every sin. It's what caused Satan to fall. It's fundamentally what caused Adam and Eve to fall. So Paul is saying this, this pride that is just at the, at the root of everything, and, and boasting, of course, is the outward expression of that, this boasting, what becomes of it? His answer, he says, it's excluded. This puts an end to it. He says the truth of the gospel demolishes pride. Well, how? How does the truth of the gospel demolish pride? And he says, is it, is it by the law of works? He says, no, by faith. And, and this is an interesting distinction, by a law of works. So most religions, right, would say pride is bad. I mean, if you look at Hinduism, if you look at Buddhism, if you look at most religions, they, they would say, hey, pride is bad. I mean, we're smart enough to look around and, and realize it causes bad things to happen, a, a, a wrong pridefulness. It causes you to treat other people poorly, um, it, 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 to harm other people. And, and most other religions, their remedy to pride is to say, stop it. Quit being prideful. 
That's our, uh, that's our response a lot of times too, right? We, we just say, okay, I'm going to stop being prideful. We try to fix our, pro through our pride through the law of works by saying, okay, well, pride is bad. I will, I will be unprideful. We set our mind to be less prideful. And then it starts to work. And then we start being proud about how humble we are, right? It's a, <laughs> it's a, it, it doesn't work. It's a constant struggle if you're living in a law-based, morality-centered world. The more moral you are, like if you're, if you're following God's law and you're doing the right things, you start to become prideful. Like, wow, I'm, I'm doing all right. And you're like, stop it. I'm being too prideful. Okay, be humble. I'm, I'm, I'm it's this, this constant cycle of trying to get there through the, the law does not work. So the gospel gives a completely different solution to pride. First, it says, you are hopelessly sinful. So any thought you have of earning your way to God is eliminated. Gives you a clear-eyed view of yourself. It, it, Romans, the first few chapters, gives us a clear-eyed view of who we are. We are hopelessly sinful. But then rather than leaving us in that hopeless state, God tells us that he has paid for all of our sins. Not that he said they don't matter, that he's not like that judge, the murder judge, who's just like, eh. He's not saying that the sins don't matter, but instead he says, I paid for them myself. And so because I paid for them, I'm declaring you righteousness. He says, what, so what we're trying to accomplish ourselves with our prideful behavior, justifying ourselves, he says, you can't, but I did. We're trying to prove that we're worth something, and God says, you are but I'm going to show you your worth in a different way, right? I'm going to show you your worth for dying for you, not by convincing you that you are good and wonderful. And the catch is, of course, that we don't get to take credit for any of it. Not even for having good faith, right? It's Schaefer's quote, we're not saved by our faith. It's not like, well, my faith is real strong or my faith is real solid, and so it's good enough faith and that satisfies God. Faith is the vessel, but the mechanism is the finished work of Christ. Does that make sense to you? Are you, are you following the distinction? It's, it's not our faith that saves us. It's utterly humbling, right? I contribute nothing. The only thing I bring to the table is the sin that needs to be forgiven. That's it. That's all I bring to the table. Everything else is provided by God. And yet at the same time, this this salvation by faith, this salvation God provides, it answers the deep need that we try to answer through pride, the need to feel like we're worth something, the need to feel like we're valuable, that we matter, right? Pride fundamentally is because we are, we're trying to prove to the world and to ourselves that we're worth something. And God says, you are, but I'm going to sh show you that in a totally different way because I'm going to die for you and I'm going to show you your value to me through my death. So what becomes a boasting? It is excluded and not by a work of law, but by a work of faith. Faith is the only way that we can exclude boasting. So in verse 28, uh-oh, PC no signal. That's not something you want to see. <laughs> His computer went to sleep. Church is going to sleep. <sighs> so in verse 28, Paul emphasizes this point, and he clarifies it. He says, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Now, Luther loved this verse in particular for this this. 328, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. It was central to his understanding of, of salvation by faith. It's such a clear and simple statement of it. Um, but an interesting side note here, there was controversy 
with, with, with Luther in this. I know it's surprising to think that Luther would be the source of any controversy. Um, but when he translated the German version of the Bible, and he translated this verse in particular, he added the word alone to this verse. So he translated it, one is justified by faith alone. That sounds very Luther, right? I mean, we have faith alone, grace alone, right? We, we, that's a very reformed kind of, we like that, right? That, and so you can see why he did that, but he was criticized because he added a word. People are like, you're adding a word to the Bible. That's, um, and his argument was, well, you got to understand German and in German, the words are different. And so to be clear, I had to put alone in there, um, I don't know why I'm telling you this, except I just thought it was kind of interesting that, that there was a, that, that there was a, a little bit of a, a controversy around that. Um, but I do understand why somebody like Luther, who is in this world where he's trying to argue against salvation by works, which was the world he lived in, why he would want to emphasize that in this verse, because that is the meaning of it, right? He's saying we are saved by faith alone, apart from works. It has nothing to do with works. So, so in that sense, he was right. Um, but I'm not recommending adding words to your Bible, just to be clear. So, um, okay, so on to Paul's next question, which I summed up as, um, is there more than one God? Paul says it better than that. He says, um, he says in verse um, 29, or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one. So he's asking this question. I mean, it's typical Paul. He's asking this question kind of, this is not one he's asking for like open discussion on, right? Like, let me, what do you think? Is there more than one God? I mean, he knows the answer he's going to get because the Jews knew Deuteronomy 6 4. They knew it well. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That was fundamental to their understanding of God. But at the heart of his question is this. Does God present himself differently to different people? Or is he consistent? Does God redeem people and forgive their sins in different ways for different people? Does he save Jews through the law and Gentiles through some other method? What he's doing here is trying to solidify his argument. Because if there is some other way than faith that God saves men, then, then he's not consistent. God is not consistent. God doesn't save Jews through their being circumcised and through their observing the law. Because if that was the case, then how does God save those outside the Jewish community? Is, he's saying, is God double-minded? Is he inconsistent? He says, no, God is not. There's not two gods. There's only one, and there's only one way in which he saves. So what are the implications of this for us? Well, I think one implication is how we think about, about other religions and, and about evangelism. One of the defining aspects of trying to live humbly, trying to, trying to have a humble viewpoint, trying to have a, a humble state of mind, is that we want to be people who listen to others, right? And who thoughtfully consider their point of view. We don't just want to be um, the opposite extreme, which is problematic, which is where we're browbeating people with the gospel and being pushy and saying, you know, there is, a, there is a, an ineffective way to present the gospel that is a very pushy, browbeating, I'm right and you're wrong um, kind of way. We don't, we don't want to be those people. So we want to be people who listen um, and who take into consideration what other people say. 
But the opposite extreme is one that says that, well, all views on God are valid, right? All religions have merit. You have your views. I have mine. And that's not going to work either. That's not going to get the job done. So the way we could phrase Paul's question is to say, is God the God of Christians only? Is he not also the God of the non-Christians? Yes. He's the God of non-Christians too. So the implications of this, there's only one God. He only saves one way. We can be firm in that. It's, it's only through the work of Christ on the cross. It has to be this way because otherwise, if he were ignoring people's sins without it being atoned for, then he's not just. So we're not being proud and arrogant by insisting that there's only one way. There's only one truth about God. There's only one path to his favor. Favor. However, I, I do think it's fair and accurate to say that there are different expressions of faith. And I have to be careful here, but where I tread. But, but what do I mean by that? So the faith of David, as a Jewish king living 500 years before Christ, that looked pretty different than us here, sitting here in this church today, right? There's, they, our faith shares some things in common, and they share the same object, which is God, the unchanging God. But a lot about our faith looks very different than David's. The faith that Noah had, the faith of Moses and Joshua, these look very different in a lot of ways than the faith of modern-day Christians living in Auburn and sitting here. And the Old Testament is full of people of faith. It looks quite different, like Isaiah and Esther, right? Just look at those two together. Their faith was a very different thing. Samson's one of my favorite examples. His faith, you're like, what the heck? That was faith? And yet God says it was. God says specifically in Hebrews that it was. So my point is that faith can look different. So in, the sense, in, in that sense, in the sense of our culture and our practices, there is a proper humility we should have as Christians and as, as evangelists. Your expression of faith, what it looks like to me from the outside, it may be different than mine. The expression of faith in an African church might look different than ours. And our goal, so, in evangelism is not to go make cultural clones of ourselves. Is not to make people necessarily look like Cornerstone Church. Our goal is to help people to know and fall in love with God. And that's going to look different for different people. That is going to look different for different people. However, the object of our faith and the means through which you or I or anyone can be saved... That's unchanging. So, so hopefully that's helpful to see how there can be a, a humble approach, but then one that is also not wishy-washy. And I, and I think it, it, it ties into, into Paul's point. Um, Piper put this well in a sermon. Uh, this is a very happy picture of Piper. Most pictures of Piper you find, he's like this. Like it's mostly pictures of him preaching, right? It's really hard to find pictures of where he's just kind of chill and smiling. Um, not that he doesn't smile a lot. I'm just, if you know, I mean, Piper's pretty expressive. I don't know where I'm going with that. Okay. Christianity, he says, does not, he was, this was actually in a sermon he was giving. They were getting ready to go out and, and do a march through Minneapolis to actually go and, and, and speak to and, 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 and represent themselves to people of all different cultures and, and, and religions. He says, Christianity does not come to other religious systems and try to replace one way to work for God with another way to work for God. It comes with a declaration of amnesty. The one true God has made a truce at the cost of his son's life. He offers pardon to every person freely and everlasting joy to those who will trust his son. 
And there's one more continuation of this from him. Sorry, it's a little bit of a long quote, but I just thought he said it so well. Um, I should say it like this, right? And then it would feel more like Piper. But the oneness of God means that there is one way to salvation. Not the way of works, but the way of faith. And because it is a way of faith, it cuts across all ethnic and political and language and cultural barriers. It's quoting, God will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Circumcision stands for any religious or ethnic trial trait that you might think would commend you to God. And uncircumcision stands for any trait or missing trait that you think might keep you from God. So I thought that was helpful in, 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 in understanding what Paul's trying to say here and, and in just understanding how we can be effective witnesses. So Paul's final question in this chapter, he says, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? I said it as my third point here, do we abolish the law? So in other words, if we play no part in our salvation, if, if the law doesn't, if, the, if works of the law don't matter, if they contribute nothing, then shouldn't we just ignore the law? And, and Paul only briefly addresses it here, basically saying, no, by no means. Um, he will get into this more as the letter develops. He will continue to make his argument here. Um, but I think it's worth addressing us here, for us to address it here as his third question. Um, this was a major question in Luther's time as well, right? He's making this argument, salvation by faith alone. And uh, there was this group called the Anton, Antinomians. And um, they came out and said, well, then the law doesn't matter at all. It's all grace, right? And I wanted to let Luther's words speak for him here. Um, I, I, just, I started with his introduction. He wrote a letter kind of saying, this is how I feel about the Antinomians. And he started by saying, my friends... The antinomians preach exceedingly well, and I cannot but believe that they do so with great earnestness concerning the mercy of Christ, forgiveness of sin, and other contents of the article of redemption. Now, that has nothing to do with his argument except to say, man, I like the way he started his letter. He actually, like, points out the stuff he likes about these guys. Like, you know, this part of this, they're actually preaching this part really well, and I love that. Um, but here's his, here's his actual argument against them, which comes further down. Um, he says, a Christ who died for sinners who after receiving, this is just parts of it, but a Christ who died for sinners who after receiving forgiveness will not quit their sin nor lead a new life is worthless and does not exist. They preach only about the redemption of Christ. It is proper to extol Christ in our preaching, but Christ is the Christ and has acquired redemption from sin and death for this very purpose that the Holy Spirit should change our old Adam into a new man, that we are to be dead unto sin and love, live unto righteousness. I thought he put that so well. His point is that if our faith does not change us, if it does not change us, cause us to turn towards God's law and seek to follow it, then it's useless. James would argue, see I'm quoting James for you, Ed, because I, I know you love James. James would argue that faith without works is dead. That it's not faith at all. There's much more that could be said about this topic, but, but I want to tie it back to, to where we're going with this passage today. And I think the thing that ties it in is, is this same thing that, that's been running through it all, this issue of pride. We've said that our, that our whole problem, fundamental to all of our sins, is our pride. Our desire to be free of God's system and his rules. And, and, so that, and, and we've said that pride runs through all of the sin that Paul talked about in the first few chapters of the book. In response to our pride... God has provided a way to be redeemed, to be reconciled to him. And it's a way, as we've said, that puts an end to all of our boasting and an end to all of our pride because we contribute nothing. 
God does all the work. So if our response to all of that is to completely ignore God's will, because his law is just that, his law is his will for how we should live, right? If our response to all of this that God has done for us is to ignore what he wants, then nothing has happened in us. We don't have faith. Nothing has changed. In fact, we are just as prideful as we ever were, right? Because we're saying, well, God, I don't, I don't care what you want. I'm just going to do what I want. The, the pride that is fundamental to the sin has not been dealt with. And the evidence that the pride has been dealt with is the fact that we actually care what God wants for us to do. So God saves us by the work of Christ using faith as the instrument or as the means. And then the result of that is works. I was really tempted to draw a diagram of this, like I couldn't quite figure out how to make a good diagram of it, and I kind of thought that would be a little nerdy. But I, but I like, like this idea, right? Of like that the the means is Christ, that the instrument is faith. See, I, my hands are making the diagram, right? You're not seeing it, okay? But but you get the point that 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 works flow out of of, of a proper faith. That that's Paul's point. That that you can't separate them. Okay, so a couple practical implications of all this. How do we put this to use? We've talked about it a little bit, but um, for ourselves and for our personal walk, it's helpful to keep in mind the humility that we find in this passage. To remind ourselves, as we do weekly in confession, that we're saved by no action of our own, that it's entirely Christ. We need to seek to see ourselves as we truly are, as, as sinners who are striving to do what is right because we want to please our good and merciful Father, but not as not as warriors of righteousness who are doing a very good job of it. We have to remind ourselves of this constantly, don't we? This is a, this is a daily, like Mike said, this is like, should be for us almost like breathing. It, it is something we have to continuously do for ourselves to remind us, um, to, to remind us of our standing before God and to remind ourselves of how much he loves us, which, is, which, which will change how we act. And secondly, we want to look at the world around us and, and grasp the same humility, to look at the sinful fallen world and to not say, well, I'm better than that. I'm better than those people out there because, because they are sinners and I am not. We need to remind ourselves that those we know who are not saved, the real problem is not their sinful behavior or their wrong views on things or their lifestyle. That is not their fundamental problem. Their fundamental problem is that they don't know Christ. Their real need, that's their, their first and only need, is they need to meet God and to come to have faith in Him. Whatever that looks like, they need to meet God and come to have faith in Him. Everything else is just details until that happens. And we can do this in, in humility because we know we have the exact same need. So let's pray now that, that God, would, God would sink this into our heads and our hearts and, 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 and help, help us to learn better to, to walk this way. Our God and Father, we thank you for the pride-smashing goodness of faith, for the work of Christ on the cross that, that tells us that you love us, that you treasure us, and that you cover all of our sins. We thank you for that goodness, Lord, and for your mercy on us. We pray, God, that as we, as we walk through our day and through our week, that we would be reminded of that constantly. And as we interact with those around us who desperately need you, Jesus, we would be reminded that we are sinners preaching to sinners. 
and that, that we are sharing this, this amnesty of Christ so that they would have hope. Help us to be effective in that today and this week. In the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.